Let's jump together into the Word of God in obedience and in eagerness. Let's read John chapter 17 from verse 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Lord, our request again is simple. Help our hearts to be aligned with your commitment to your glory and help us to see your glory today, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever prayed with somebody who's so fervent in their, their prayer and their faith that being in their presence and praying with them has awakened in you or called within you a a deeper longing for an intimacy with the Father. As an intern at Florida Baptist Church um, nearly a decade ago, a a preaching hero of mine uh, was in South Africa, uh, C.J. Mahaney. And he was in South Africa for a, a conference. And now before every service at Florida Baptist Church, we would pray for the service as a staff and as a worship team. And Uh, C.J. Mahaney was there to pray with us. Now, he preaches with incredible fervency, with with great passion. But man, if you you could hear him pray. And that prayer before the service uh, has stuck with me. I counted a privilege that I was in that room. Our little, little church, little church service in South Africa, he was overwhelmed at the task before him to preach before us. He was overwhelmed at what was happening that day, the importance of the meeting. And his fervency in prayer, I think, um, has helped shape the way that I've viewed the gathering of God's people. Well, how much more privileged I am today to stand before you and to open up John 17 with you all to look into the heart of Christ, His longing, the night before He goes to the cross. This is probably the greatest prayer, John 17, that has ever been spoken in this world. He's just finished speaking precious words to His disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of John's gospel, getting them ready for what's going to happen. And now He turns His focus heavenward and He pours out His heart before His Father. This has been sometimes called the, the holy of holies when it comes to Scripture. I think it's, we need to be careful about differentiating like that, but there is something truly valuable here. John Knox, the, the great Scottish reformer, um, he died um, through illness, and uh, it was protracted, and on his deathbed, every person who would visit, he would ask that they would read this passage to him. So every day for for his last days, he heard John 17, he's heard these words read. 
John Calvin said this, he said, the other gospels show us Christ's body. John shows us his soul. And that is true in general, but no more so than here. This is not instruction on how we are to pray necessarily. It's not the same as the Lord's Prayer um, that we're going through in our small groups. This is an open window into the soul of the Savior as he pours out his heart to his Father. We see his longing, his desire before he goes to the cross, his hopes, his expectations for the future, poured out in holy plea. What a privilege we have today. What does Jesus pray for in this prayer? What is his deep desire as he steals himself for the cross? What do we see as we gaze into the soul of Christ and into this intercommunion, as Seb said, between our Trinitarian God? This is a, something we don't see very often in Scripture. This prayer usually is divided into three sections, and that's what I'm going to do as well. We're going to follow that same outline. Three weeks in the greatest prayer ever prayed. And then we'll, we'll break into something else before Christmas and something else maybe in the new year and come back to John 18 before Easter to finish the book around Easter time. But what does Jesus pray for in this first section, these five verses in, God, in John 17? He prays for himself. His prayer is summed up here with these words, Father, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. Now it may come as a shock to you that throughout the Bible, one of the overarching themes is God's commitment to His own glory. And you may come to passages like this and hear prayers like this and be discomforted by them. Is it okay for Christ to pray for His own glory? Is it egotistical for God to be committed to it? to his own glory. As we discuss this section, I hope that you will see with me that the resounding answer is no. It is not egotistical. He's not a megalomaniac. But this is right. So to lay a foundation quickly, I just want to talk for a minute about the idea of glory. It's one of those things we talk about so often in the life of the church, and yet sometimes I think we don't fully comprehend in fact, I believe we have limited ability to fully understand what we're talking about. When we talk about the glory of God, we talk about His splendor, His majesty, His radiance. But biblically speaking as well, that's coupled with this idea of weightiness, gravitas, His awesomeness, His importance. To glorify something is to honor it, to display a recognition of its majesty in a way that reveals an understanding of this object's importance. I think a, a good analogy about glory is, is the fact that we, we cannot go a day of life in this world without the sun. We all know that. It shapes everything that we do. I mean, uh, it, it gives us light. We know that photosynthesis is happening because of the, the existence of the sun, gravity. Everything about life is sustained by the sun. And this is true as well of the glory of God. Foundational to real life is His glory, His importance, His weight. 
Ray Orton said this. He said, the opposite of glory is triviality. That's the opposite of glory. And the world tends to trivialize God. It's at the heart of our deepest problems. True life cannot be built on a trivialization of God. So what would it say of Him? What would it say of God if He trivialized Himself? If He said to us, don't worry about it. Don't make a fuss. You just go on with your own business. No, for God not to make a big deal of God, and that's a definition of glory, to make a big deal of something, would be to falsely elevate something else to a place that it cannot sustain and a place that it it does not deserve. And yet we get offended when God says, no, I am the center of all things. You are not the center. Christ's prayer here would only be egotistical and problematic if in fact he was not the true center of all things. R.C. Sproul said, Jesus understood what most of us don't understand. If we seek our glory, we seek our glory at the expense of the glory of God. But when Christ asks the Father to glorify him, it's not at the expense of the Father because the glorification of the Son is the glorification of the Father. So he says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. As we unpack this prayer, I just want us to see three aspects of this glory. The glory of Christ. There's a past glory, a present glory, and a future glory in this passage. Let's look first at the past glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sheree, my wife, sees the glory in ice cream. I, when we started dating, I learned very quickly not to ask her to share with me. That glory she giveth not to another. When she was young and living in Pinetown, there, there used to be a, a factory shop called Huberto's Ice Cream. And she spoke about it all the time, about how great this ice cream was. And so when we moved here, it appeared as if this factory shop had moved. Um, and so we drove out with great excitement to New Germany, but it, it wasn't a factory shop anymore. It was just a factory. And she insists the stuff that you buy on the shelves, I don't know how, but somehow it changes. It's not the same. It's not the same as what she remembered. For us, this is what nostalgia means, isn't it? Often it comes with this disappointment that things are not going to be the same. They're not going to be what they once were. We've lost something. Christ's prayer here is not just nostalgia, but this is an acknowledgement of the truth that there was a glory that was His and it will be His again. He says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In His prayer before the cross, He is sustained by the memory of it and certain of its return. Sinclair Ferguson says this, It is as though he comes to the door of his Father's presence and he opens the door of eternity just slightly ajar in order that something of the brightness of God's presence might shine out from there. As he cries for the glory, the memory of it having sustained him throughout the whole course of his ministry, he longs that that door, a chink of which is now open to his disciples, may be fully thrown open, that he may re-enter to where he once stood in the presence of God. 
What would we see were we to look back into eternity before time? We would see eternally existent the glory of a triune God. Christ had no beginning. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This week, um, we had a, a security system installed at our house, and the, the man who was there doing the work, um, I, I got to talking to him at one point, and uh, he, he spoke about this serious trouble that he, he's facing. It's something, you know, that kind of trouble that just consumes your mind. It was eating away at him, and I, I offered to, to pray for him, and he was more than happy. And then I asked if he belonged to a church, and I was surprised by his answer. He said, no, I'm, uh, I'm a Muslim. And so I was surprised. I said, but you know, I'm, when I pray, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. And he said to me, no problem. I'll take all the prayer I can get. I believe in Jesus. We Muslims, we know him. We know his miracles. And I thought, no. If you can't see back further than that, then you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't know him like this. And I tried in my prayer to speak of Jesus, the eternally existent one, as the foundation, only foundation of our hope. John has labored that we would see the eternal Christ in his gospel. In various ways he has done this. And one of those ways is, is these words that Jesus keeps repeating throughout the gospel. This name that he claims for himself. I am, he says, speaking of the, the divine name of God himself. When Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and Moses said, who should I say is sending me? He says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. When Jesus is questioned of his origin and the Jews are saying, what are you talking about? Where are you even from? Our father is Abraham. Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. Find me a stone so I can throw at him. To the hungry, he said, I am the bread of life. To the lost, I am the good shepherd. To the blind, I am the light of the world. To those grieving the death of a loved one, I am the resurrection and the life. It is right for Jesus to pray this prayer. Father, glorify your son with the glory I had. It is His rightful place, sharing in that glory eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you have a problem with a, a God who is committed to His own glory, let me ask you this question. Why did He create us? Why did God even create us? Why did He make us? And why did He make us in His image? As the Bible says that He did. For eternity before time, the triune God existed in perfect glory and in perfect love. Tim Keller points out this. He says, from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been glorifying each other. That is, they've been communicating to one another and pouring into one another, as it were, infinite degrees of honor and love, of adoration and delight, mutually and eternally. Christianity alone, therefore, with the triune God, presents a creator who would not create out of any need or any lack. Were he a unipersonal God, in other words, one person, 
and He created, He would only then really experience love through creation. Only experience a reception of glory through creation. But our Trinitarian God existed forever in perfect love, in perfect glory and glorifying. So why create us? It wasn't out of need. It wasn't out of lack. He created us to communicate that love through a display of His glory. He made us in His image to bring us into what He has always had. For me, one of the most compelling arguments for a Trinitarian God is the fact that we are made for glory. We know it to be true. We were made for love. The, the, the very way that we were created speaks about a Trinitarian God. I cannot believe in a God that would make us as He has, make us in this way, and then not present Himself to us as the most beautiful, the most glorious, fulfilling being in all the universe. I couldn't believe in a God that didn't say to us that He was the most important thing in the universe, most important person. That is precisely what He has done, even in history. So let's look at the, the present glory in this passage. I was reminded this week of what we tend to think of when we think of glory and receiving glory the, this week. It was my birthday. And your birthday is your glory day, right? It's all about you. Presence. You get to pick the meal. You get a cake made in your honor. A nice cake if you're me. And who's going to force you to do chores, right? You don't change dirty nappies and, and wash dishes on your birthday. No, your birthday is a day for breakfast in bed. What does Jesus' prayer for glory entail in this passage? What is he actually asking? Where does it take him? It takes him to the cross. When we want glory, the cross is not what we have in mind. But the cross is in his mind. It's the means of His glory when He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. He says in verse 4, I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. What was that work? Yes, it did include His teachings. It included His miracles. But here primarily He's looking forward to what is about to happen in the work of redemption. When He talks about this hour, this is what He's talking about. This hour, we've seen this language throughout the gospel. When they're about to arrest him at times, he doesn't allow them to arrest him. He doesn't allow himself to be arrested, saying, my hour has not yet come. But there's this change in chapter 12 after the triumphal entry. He says in 12.23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is Passion Week. He's days away. It's now moments away when he's praying this prayer, as R.C. Sproul points out, not to be held at a distance, but looming right before him. So this prayer for glory is simultaneously a prayer, I believe, for strength. Sovereign God, do what we have ordained to do since before I even came. He's saying in this prayer, I'm not bailing out. Between the garden and Golgotha, I will be there on the cross. My hour has come. In verse 2, we see a foundation for His glory. Verse 2 implies what theologians have called the pactum salutis, the, 
the covenant of salvation, the covenant of redemption made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before time even began. Look at verse 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give Him eternal life to all whom you have given Him. That phrase, all who you have given Him, we see it throughout the gospel and four times actually in this prayer. So in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. So there's the scriptural teaching that the cross is not just God's reaction to sin. The cross was not plan B after the original plan failed. It was the agreed upon course of action from before anything was created. Before the foundation of the world, God ordained in wisdom to save and to reveal His glory to wayward children. Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 4, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. So we see in this passage again, before we ever belonged to Christ, we belonged to the Father. And all authority was given to the Son that He may give eternal life. What is this eternal life? He says in verse 3, this is the eternal life that only Jesus Christ can give. And this is eternal life that, you, that they know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is the essential nature of eternal life? It's not just immortality. There is an immortality of death. Eternal life, as D.A. Carson points out, is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. That's the nature of eternal life in the Gospel of John, to know him and to see him. That's life. It's the promise of life in Scripture. It's a promise of covenant hope. I mean, covenant knowledge. The tragedy of fallen Israel in the Old Testament is summed up in Hosea 4.16. They are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But the new covenant hope of Jeremiah 31, from the least to the greatest, they will all, all his people know him personally when he forgives their sins and remembers them no more. Isaiah 40 promises the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all flesh. We will be spellbound, transformed, and transfixed by it. We were made for glory. We were created for glory. We know it to be true. Every time we behold something that is breathtaking, when you look at a, a sunset and you just want somebody else to see it with you, when you look into the face of, of your, your child or taste, you get a taste of music that reverberates in your soul, you know it to be true. We were made for glory. We were, we were made to share it. So every now and then I sit Sheree down and we watch the highlights of the 2005 Champions League final. Liverpool's glorious comeback against AC Milan. They were 3-0 down. I show her, and I want her to see what I see. She shows me videos from this this TV show called World of Dance. 
And I take my cues from her and from the, the judge's outburst to know what is the glory I'm supposed to be transfixed by. We were made for glory, to revel in it. Sin didn't give us our glory appetites. Being made in the image of God, being image bearers did. Sin just changed our appetites and blinded us to what is ultimately and supremely glorious. And Jesus came to reveal and draw our focus back to supreme glory once again. And he did it through the cross. When we look upon the cross, we look upon the glory of God. Now you may ask, how is that true? Isn't the cross about humiliation? Isn't the cross about shame? Inherent in in Jesus' prayer here is the truth that when he came to the earth, there was a dimming of glory. There was a, a losing of something, something left behind, something that he refused to grasp hold of. If we borrow from the hymn Paul quoted in Philippians chapter 2, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And that hymn speaks of a progression of humiliation, leaving heaven, coming to the earth, and not just coming to the earth in the form of man, but dying, being obedient even to the point of death, and he says, even death on a cross. The cross had a specific purpose in the Roman world. It was a deterrent to rebellion. That was how they made examples out of people. If you will question our power, question our right to rule, This is what happens to you. It was a symbol of Rome's power over humiliated would-be insurgents. There was already a, a glory that was dimmed in Christ's coming to the earth by his humanity. When they heard him speak, the Son of God, when they saw him miracle do miracles, they were amazed. Is this not just the carpenter's son? Furthermore, Isaiah foretold that in his death he would be marred even beyond human recognition. So so Keller points out in those moments he lost even the semblance of human glory. So how can we speak of the cross, this ultimate symbol of shame, as the means of his and the Father's glory? And we must be clear about this. This is what he is talking about in this passage. D.A. Carson points out He says, we need to be careful to understand something. The ultimate display of God's glory is not after the shame of the cross. It's in the shame of the cross. It is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and particularly through his substitutionary atonement that we see and know who God is. I don't just mean, and this is true, I don't just mean that through the cross every obstacle that existed to our being able to know Him eternally, being able to be in relationship with Him, would be removed. That is true. But it is more than that. The cross actually reveals to us who God is. The cross is the canvas upon which Christ painted the character of God. The purpose of the cross in God's choice even before creating anything to redeem fallen sinners is that through the cross, Christ would glorify the Father by displaying to the world in a way never before seen the divine perfection of His character. We see 
His justice at the cross. We see the depths of His holiness at the cross, that He would not turn a blind eye to sin, but would send His own Son to die on the cross because of it. We see His mercy at the cross. We see His grace in a way that we would never otherwise see. Without sin and without redemption, we would not know as fully the holiness of God, how good and true He is, and we would not experience as fully His grace that He would send for us, His Son, the Righteous One, to die in our place, that God Himself would bear our sin, that He would absorb holy wrath for you and me to a world that trivializes God, trivializes sin and eternity, the cross speaks of a holiness that we have vastly underestimated, a love that we have scorned, and a glory that we were made to see. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Are you discomforted by that prayer? Remember John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. This is what this prayer entails. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that is exactly what he did. Let's see finally. Number three, future glory. Back to verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That is what the Father did. The Son of God went in the strength of God to the hell of the cross. And he accomplished the work that the Father gave him. He cried, it is finished. As we sing, he was slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. He rose, he ascended, and he sat down at the Father's side. It was the glory he had before but it, was a, it is a glory with a difference. It is nuanced. There is something new that the redeemed will see and sing about for all eternity, for all our eternal years. Jesus' prayer to return to His glory is, is not a prayer that the incarnation would be reversed. It's not a prayer of de-incarnation. Yes, His glory never will be dimmed again, but now and forever, His glory is revealed in a resurrected body. And Jesus kept the scars. Part of the undiminishable glory of heaven are the scars of Jesus Christ. We will see them and we will treasure them for all eternity. Forever saints and angels will look upon the Lamb of God with new understanding and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth <coughs> and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John spoke of this glory glimpsed in Revelation 21:23, <coughs> And he said, The city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine it, for the glory of, the go of God illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's the new picture in heaven. As we close, I want to jump quickly to the end of this prayer to listen in awe to what, what actually goes hand in hand with a prayer for glory. 
Look at verse 24 of chapter 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I pray that they may, may be with me where I am to see my glory. There is no request that Christ could make of the Father that could fall upon our ears as more precious than this. Father, bring them into what they were made for. Bring them into an experience forever of my glory. Christ's prayer to be glorified is simultaneously a prayer for rebels like you and me. That we would see something that we, we do not deserve to see. Our eyes do not deserve to look upon that glory. After how we have trivialized it. C.S. Lewis spoke of our search for glory in life as this door that we bump up against all the time. From time to time, it's open just a crack and we get a a glimpse in when we see, as I said, the, the beauty of a sunset. But it's always open a crack and then shut again. Jesus Christ is praying that the door that upon which we have been knocking all of our lives would be fully thrown open forever and that we would be let in. Are you okay that God is committed to his own glory? This is what it would mean for you if you would be okay with it like he has commanded us to. There is no room for true joy unless we are consumed by a passion for his glory. And how awesome is this? The glorious one, the holy one, the eternally satisfied one would actually desire that we would be there with him. What more is there to be desired than that we are desired by Christ? I marvel at the grace by which I'm able to say, he he is mine, he belongs to me. But oh, how marvelous is the grace that causes in his heart to say, you belong to me, you are mine, and I want you here with me. What could you possibly make a bigger deal of than the glory of God? Charles Spurgeon said, Far be it from these eyes, which are soon to look upon the king in his glory, to look lustfully upon the world. So in closing, I ask you, what is it worth you to know him, to see that glory? Would you be like the rich young ruler for whom the cost of selling everything that he had was too great? Would you be like the man who found that treasure hidden in a field and sold all that he had to get it? Living for this glory means that we spare no expense. We will go to any extreme. We will do anything and whatever we must in order to know him and to see his glory. And Christian today, is there a hope or promise greater, an assurance greater as a child of God than this? What in all creation could stop the Son of God getting what he prays for? Let's pray. Father, I just pray...
the end of looking at a passage like this, that you would help us by enabling us to see more seriously your holiness, your goodness. I pray that you would never let us rest comfortable in our sin. We want to see you in a way that burns sin out of our lives. Help us to know the truth that you are the center of all things. That true life is found in you, Jesus. You are the great I am. Help us to trust you. To trust that when we do see you face to face, that it will be the most glorious thing that we have ever seen. Help us to know now that no sacrifice, there is no sacrifice that we will regret that day. No temptation that we have stood firm against that will not be rewarded by a sight of your face. Help us, we pray. Amen.